This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. One of the benefits of the digital age we are in is that technology is seemingly making us more efficient at work and in our personal lives. But what if rather than making us more efficient, these tools actually keep us from learning how to respond to the unexpected? Our next guest says there's a better way to think about bettering our lives using a combination of artificial intelligence and trained intuition and by learning from the random and unexpected. Edward Tenner is a distinguished scholar at the Center for the Study of Innovation at the Smithsonian. His new book, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do, is out now, and he joins us right now. Mr. Tenner, great to have you with us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I guess, am I right in saying that over the course of time, I mean, we all strive to have efficiency, but that a little inefficiency can, can benefit us at times as well? Exactly. That's the point of my book. How so? The problem with efficiency is that algorithms let us really learn from experience. They let us codify experience. They let us benefit. They recognize patterns. They're really tremendous at that. For example, uh, I use the uh, Google program Waze, and I first started out as a critic of it, but then I got into it more and more, and I still value it. However, uh, the problem with Waze is that every once in a while, it will make a terrific blunder. For example, once when I was going south, it pointed me north. Right. And so if somebody relies completely on a system like that, no matter how brilliantly engineered, sooner or later, some glitch is going to bite back. However, if they keep their awareness of where they are, if they keep their common sense, and if they keep trust in their common sense, then they can really get the most of the program while avoiding those uh, little disasters. So then to a degree, have, have, because we are quite a bit reliant on, on technology, are we losing something as, as a society, as a culture? There is definitely that risk, and it happens all the time because it's so easy to become dependent. It's so easy just to accept what uh, what a, a program is proposing to you and to shut your eyes to other things that might be a little more unusual. But, of course, that, that didn't really start with, with technology because people were using pattern recognition. People were using routines for a long time. For example, look at all the publishers that turned down the Harry Potter series. Right. Uh, because Harry Potter was something so new, although it had elements from, from other literary works, obviously. It was something so new that it really didn't fit into the pattern of what publishers thought would be a really successful children's book. And it was only when the eight-year-old daughter of the editor uh, wrote a, a, little, a little review of the book, an ecstatic little review of the book, and so he decided uh, this, was, this was the one to, uh, to, to buy. So in, in that sense, the, the, the problem with artificial intelligence is really not limited to the technology. It's limited, really, it, it's extended, I should say, to the tendency that we all have to just 
go on what's been familiar and to ignore the the unexpected, to ignore our, our really our ability to to recognize something that's really fresh and exciting. We're joined by Edward Tenner, who is the author of the book, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. Your comments welcome on the phone at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you're not able to get to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio132, B-I-Z radio 132. Or you can use my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Uh efficiency obviously is something that's been around in in various forms. I mean, it's not exclusive to the digital culture we're in. I mean, you can go back uh, centuries to be able to to look at aspects of efficiency. But one of the things that that caught my eye that you mentioned is the fact that I guess that that efficiency itself was kind of redefined going back to the 19th century, correct? Yes. uh, The 19th century made a huge difference. Before the 19th century, people, of course, were always concerned with managing with uh, the the least overhead uh, getting the getting the most for the least and so forth but they didn't really have a doctrine about it and one of the big changes of the 19th century with the rise of the steam engine was that now people were really very much concerned with how much uh, work we can get out of a given unit of coal, for example, which steam engines would would let a railroad travel fastest on on a given amount of fuel. So people started thinking much more systematically about efficiency, and that in turn fed back into business and social thinking more generally. One of the the descriptions you use relates efficiency uh, at times to a threat. How how so? Uh, The uh, efficiency as a threat with a with a T or with a D? With a T. I'm sorry. Okay, because I, I have also I've also written about the 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 history of sewing thread, which is which is another uh, another whole topic in the okay. study of yeah. efficiency. But no. efficiency as a, as a thread, I think, is it, it appears in in a number of ways. You know, the, the the first, of course, is that that if we try to do everything efficiently, then we are we are really turning off uh, the the power of, of serendipity, which, which really relies on waste. It really relies on our taking a, a wrong turn occasionally or picking up a book in the, that we, we hadn't expected. In fact, one of my most exciting moments was when uh, John Kennedy Jr., who was editor of George Magazine, called me, and he had been looking for another book in a bookstore, and uh, he happened to see mine on a different topic I would never have thought right. of being a contributor, <laughs> but uh, but he liked the book, and so we had lunch, and I was able to write uh, a couple of articles for him. So the uh, recently there's been an article uh, in the New York Times about the declining number of bookstores in New York, so possibly that bookstore wouldn't have been there, and I wouldn't have gotten the call. So that, that led me to see that uh, that bookstores are a really great example of an institution that uh, promotes serendipity, and uh, and it's important for people to seek out that kind of opportunity. Edward Tenner, again, the author of the book, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. He is our guest right now, and your comments welcome on the phone at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866, or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132, B-I-Z Radio 132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Now, in the book, you look at efficiency in a variety of different areas, 
and one of the areas that, that we've focused on a, on a variety of occasions is education. And, and I'd be interested to, to get your thoughts as to how efficiency is having an impact, positively and negatively, uh, on, on our education system right now. Education naturally fascinates me because I've been involved in it in different connections for uh, most of my life. And when I wrote the book, what I had not realized that the application of efficiency to education actually goes back to Thomas Edison himself. And Edison once said that he thought that textbooks are only 3% efficient. Bill Gates recently said something very similar. Uh, textbooks are only 3% efficient, and he thought that an adaptation of his new motion picture system could really jumpstart science education. And so he actually started a company to produce those. He invented a new kind of projector that would be suitable for classrooms, and it was a marketing bomb. And the reason for that was that Edison uh, was an absolutely brilliant dropout, and he was able to hire really great technical people. He deserves his reputation as a technical genius, but he had never taught a class, <laughs> and uh, he had very limited experience to the system. So yeah. he didn't really understand what goes into uh, science education or education more broadly, and so he wasn't able to to uh, to market the, the 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 product. And this has been a thread I discovered in most of the programs for making education more efficient through technology. A B.F. Skinner, the psychologist, was one of the very few people in the field who actually had uh, had had taught classes. So he, but but even his system of programmed learning was not terribly successful. So I'm not saying that that um, that technology can't be valuable in education. It can right. be extremely valuable, but uh, there's a lot about education that actually can be improved by what is called desirable difficulty. And that means that somebody who is taking notes on a lecture, for example, will learn more if they have to paraphrase the lecturer in longhand than if they can uh, type verbatim on some device uh, with a um, uh, you know with a keyboard right and the the reason for that is that when you're when you're forced to write when you have that constraint of writing when you can't write everything down verbatim then you are forced to digest for yourself and understand better the major questions of the lecturer whereas when you can just type you're you're just typing it's it's what psychologists call fluency right and fluency does not necessarily translate into understanding and 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 honestly edward i have thought a little bit the same in my personal life with uh, my oldest daughter who's in 7th grade and 12 years of age in math and, and the fact that now they have the ability to rely on uh using a calculator for certain elements of, of their math learning instead of actually you know writing it out and, and doing it themselves yes i think calculators can be really great in math calculators can reduce the tedious side, but there is a risk, as you say, that in eliminating steps, you're turning mathematical thinking into a black box, so you don't really understand how the computer got to the subject. So I think there there needs to be a balance between what students will 
do mentally and what they're doing uh, with uh, devices. Now, the, the interesting thing about the older math culture was the slide rule, because the slide yeah. rule was really something kind of in between. Uh, but when I worked in publishing, my first boss, uh, Herb Bailey, who was director of Princeton University Press, would still use a slide rule for a lot of his calculations because he said it let him visualize a, a range of scenarios. Of course, he was a you know he he taught in the military in the Second World War, so he was from that technological culture. But but I think there was a lot in that, and he certainly was a, a very very efficient director. We're joined by Edward Tenner, who is the author of the book, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. You also talk about uh, efficiency in this paradox in terms of the world of medicine and the medical field right now. Yes, there's been a dream of better medicine through information technology, and there there are lots of things that computers can can really do to improve medical outcomes, uh, if only in in research. So I am uh, I'm very enthusiastic about the possibility of uh, of of technology in medicine. However. Lots of things have had really unexpected outcomes. For example, the electronic medical record uh, has been uh, praised by politicians and and leading doctors and and administrators as a way to eliminate all of the costly misunderstandings of doctors' handwritings to enable the better transfer of patients' medical records. In principle, the electronic medical record looks like a really great thing. But the problem of the electronic medical record is that it really shifts a lot of the burden to doctors and their staffs to enter information in a standardized way. And there are also all kinds of problems of interoperation of systems, of of updating systems. And And so a lot of doctors are actually complaining about uh, burnout, and there have been a number of articles in medical journals both before and after my book was published about this. So it may just be that we are not doing it right, but the the point is that if something like that is not implemented correctly, a move for efficiency can lead to less efficiency. We could, we could. I, I, I mean, I, I don't care when I say this, but you could see because of of all of that technology that doctors are using, see a rise of, of doctors having to deal with something like carpal tunnel as well. It's you know, it's it's significantly a, a potential issue here. We're joined by Edward Tenner, uh, author of the book The Efficiency Paradox: What Big Data Can't Do. Your comments are welcome at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio one thirty or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So uh, then how do you think, Edward, about algorithms moving forward? Uh, do we need to to adapt algorithms to, to factor in other elements as, as we move forward in some of these areas? I think we're going to be using more and more algorithms. It's, it's really a good thing, and, and there are there are uh, there are many pluses. A lot of other people have written about the pluses. So I'm I'm really focusing on the on the problems with the the idea that that recognizing them can lead us to to get the most out of the system. So one of the things that that really is important to me is uh, trusting our own intuition and not dismissing it as as uh, some. 
some gurus uh, uh, su- suggest that we do, because very often uh, something that we have at the back of our minds is really a, a very good check on what the algorithm is saying. So I see that as a um, as another um, an- another way to to prevent the kind of problem I mentioned of the GPS telling you occasionally to go in the wrong direction, or even to take a dangerous turn, this happened a few times. Right. Uh, what is the, what is your expectation then, as we move forward in the next decade or two, as to how we will be able to to kind of balance both sides of this debate? Well, it really depends on people's own uh, behavior. It's not something that can be really uh, decided by policy. So if, if, people, if people really want to delegate as much as possible of their lives to algorithms, there are lots of companies that w- will be very happy to, to do that for you. Um, my book is really suggesting that in addition to using them, we also uh, cultivate other things. We, For example, we have a lot of what... Uh, what sociologists and psychologists of technology call tacit knowledge. We, we know a lot more than we think. Things that we can't articulate that are impossible to build into artificial intelligence systems and yet are essential for everyday living. Uh, consider, for example, the meaning of an unfamiliar proverb. A little kid can tell you, for example, what a stitch in time saves nine means, because we think metaphorically. It's a, it's a natural thing. Somebody from another culture can probably tell you what it means. But it's much, much harder for an algorithm to, to make that jump unless it happens to have programmed into it some database with the meaning of that particular saying. And the, the wonderful thing about human reasoning is that we have a this this stock of skills and knowledge that we can't articulate but are there when we need it. Right. And one of the other things you bring up playing off of that is the fact that there are elements of our knowledge uh, within our brains that are things that can't be really replicated by artificial intelligence. And, and I find that interesting, especially now, considering the fact that uh, there's so much conversation about how AI is going to uh, come into our culture and, and change so many things, but also improve things as well. Well, it, it, it can change them, but my, my point is, do we, you know, do, we really, do we really want to change them? Or do right. we really want, for example, to have our future reading based on patterns of the reading that we have been doing recently. That is something that can certainly get you into greater depth than what you've been doing. But it, it, um, it rules out that, that peripheral vision. Now, sometimes uh, astronomers will, will actually use averted vision because the, the part of our eye that's not in the central focus actually can detect a lot of things better than the uh, than than foveal vision. So my metaphor is uh, for for that is really that that we have a tremendous asset in this in this peripheral vision that we get, and that uh, that artificial intelligence, if it's not used right, can can just blank that out and and deprive us of. Uh, something that will uh, take us beyond the pattern that we've fallen into. Yeah. So again, 
there there is a benefit to having all of this, but if you playing off of that, if if you don't have that peripheral vision on a particular subject or a particular area, uh, the the potential for a loss, whatever how you quantify that loss, is certainly there, and it makes you wonder how that is going to be impacted if you're multiplying that, say, by 10 million people, 20 million people, 30 million people, whatever that number may be. Yeah, that's a, that's a real issue. Now, what, one of the fascinating things about uh, artificial intelligence and computer guidance generally is that when builders of advanced aircraft are designing the control systems, they don't entrust anything to anything really crucial to a single computer. They use right. multiple redundant systems, and those systems are programmed by different people with different hardware and software. And the idea is that you can have one system uh, like Waze, as I mentioned, that makes a glitch, but it's unlikely that a number of independent systems that are quote-unquote voting will will all be making the same mistake at the same time. So... That kind of redundancy is one way to avoid some of the problems of artificial intelligence, but it, it doesn't get at this element of serendipity. It doesn't get at the element of surprise, and so much of human progress really has consisted of people taking that kind of jump from established patterns and intuitively finding some more, um, you know, more. Uh, really, really interesting ways of, of thinking. Uh, and, and that's why so many really successful books have originally been turned down or, or grudgingly published like Moby Dick. Moby Dick seemed to be this really weird book that broke all the rules. The original sales were not that great. Right. And an algorithm might have defeated it entirely, but the point was that here was somebody who had a, a really stunning original vision and was able to express it in a in a new way that didn't fit into any of those patterns. But how does how does what you talk about in the book and and this concern over efficiency also play out with what we've seen recently surrounding some of the the social media scandals, the data sharing issues that that are out there right now? The the problems of social media are are uh, really that that uh, they they tend to reinforce what is what is already there. They tend to to build on trends. There have been studies, for example, of how people rate songs, and what they find is that a small difference in listeners' initial preference can snowball and really distort what um, what people would otherwise think of as the quality of songs. So there is that. There's that bias, but I think there's there's also the uh, the issue that the social media, by taking away so much advertising revenue from newspapers and magazines, have also really changed the the total media environment, and therefore have have weakened the kind of original reporting and writing that should actually be the basis of social media so that they've kind of undermined themselves. 
Edward, pleasure to talk to you today. Greatly appreciate your time and all the best with the book. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Edward Tenner, the book, again, is The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. The book is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. Edward, a distinguished scholar at the Center for the Study of Innovation at the Smithsonian Institution, uh, and a pleasure to have him on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.